along to the Candy Pants Lifestyle Podcast. I'm Nick and this week we roll out the big guns. There really aren't many names that hold the heavyweight status that this week's guests does. But then again, there aren't many people who achieved what this week's guest has. Innovator, creator and industry leader, he's one of the biggest DJs of his generation. He's been there, done it, and then done it all again in a career that has reached every corner of the globe, being littered with awards, accolades and praise from his peers. He holds iconic status in Ibiza and beyond, and his music has been enjoyed by millions. After over 30 years, this judge will still not budge. You're about to hear one of the biggest DJ names on the planet talking to me on our little podcast. So I'll admit in advance, I was even more nervous doing this one than I normally am doing these. And well, that really is saying something. So you won't be surprised to hear me say, I kind of hope no one's listening. But if you are, I hope you very much enjoy the journey of the legend that is Mr. Judge Jules. Mr. Judge Jules, an absolute legend of nightlife on the podcast. Jules, thank you so, so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. I mean, this podcast is just all about, you know, trying to speak to people from across the lifestyle industry, uh, like leading figures. And the more I've thought about it, we should have just got you on from the start and it would stopped. I would have saved so much time. You've been DJ, producer, promoter, radio presenter. A music lawyer—it's like you name it, you have done it, haven't you? Yeah, I think within the music sphere, certainly, I've done the majority of kind of um, different job descriptions. Does that make me uh, directionless, or does that make me lucky? I don't know which. Um, certainly, in in uh, 2020, I'm now a um, my my main kind of roles are during the week running my legal practice. I represent hundreds of different um, well artists in particular, but managers, entities, labels. Uh, so that's kind of my midweek job. And then at weekends, of course, DJing, which uh, under normal circumstances, uh, I remain really, really busy. In 2019, I did 100 gigs. Uh, this year, I probably would have exceeded that, up except for certain circumstances that have screwed the gigs up big time. But I've been doing um, live streaming from my lounge, uh, did the seventh week uh, just now, this weekend. And thus far, I've got over 2 million views. So it's all been going very well in that respect as well. I suppose the big question for you is that you've been DJing for so, so long. Like, I think it's like nearly over 30 years. You must have seen so many DJs come and go, but you've lasted. Why do you think that is? Oh, God. Uh, 30 years sounds a bit frightening, doesn't it? It sounds like the sort of person that if I was 18, would I want to have (laughs) gone to see somebody who'd been doing it for such a long time? I I think the bottom line is, A, I dare I say I probably don't look like I've been doing it for 30 years, although I certainly don't look look like I've been doing it for five years. I think think the biggest thing, you know, all you have as a DJ, a kind of club and festival and event DJ, is your ears and your ability to choose the right records and put them together correctly, and just how into it you are, how much energy you exude behind the decks because you can't fool anybody and I think one of the main reasons why I've seen a number of DJs come and go 
whilst I dare I say have still continued strong, is because people kind of they get burnt out, they lose the love. But I never really have. I just I, I really do, do love it, and I, you can't fake it. It's not something you can act. Either you're kind of in it or you're outside of it. And I just still consider myself to be very in it now. Although if you told me that I'd still be doing it now. A decade, two decades ago, I would have laughed clean in your face. It's funny, you know, you say a decade ago. And I think what's strange for me about doing this is that you know, like, I'm 28 now. And like when we were 17, me and my mates, we went to Ayanapa. And you were the first DJ we ever went to see in like a proper nightclub. And we thought we were the coolest people ever. And like, I can guarantee you we definitely weren't. But... I remember and just thinking that was the first time I had a grasp of what the difference between, you know, Joe Blanc, the DJ who works in, you know, a local nightclub versus an international DJ. We were like, wow, this was something special. So, but you're still doing it 10 years on and we're probably doing it 10 years before. What do you think, you know, you've seen all these DJs coming through. What would you maybe say to some of them now? If you were like, look, I've done it before. This is the advice I'd give you. Well, I think that, I mean, one thing you can't teach is love and hunger. Uh, and of course, love and hunger for being in the music industry uh, does wane for many people. I'm really lucky that it hasn't for me. I just, um, I, I, in many ways, when I, about 10 years ago, I went to night school and retrained to become a lawyer and set up my, my music legal practice, um, which I sort of did because I was touring so madly. I was doing like... Um, I mean, something like 300 flights a year was doing, uh, going long haul every other week was, um, uh, was, was literally never at home. And which is, which sounds amazing, but actually if you're on your own or occasionally you're with a tour manager, it's quite sort of, it's, I wouldn't say lonely because I'm quite comfortable in my own skin, but it's definitely not, uh, the, the, the kind of rock and roll fantasy that you might imagine it is. I mean, the gigs are great, and the uh, but there's a lot of spade work, masses of spade work, masses of travelling, and I think, I think for me, um, so going back to night school, becoming a lawyer, setting up a music practice, um, representing other people, and, and looking at other people's careers has really invigorated my own career because it's reminded me how lucky I am, um, and reminded me what it is I love about what I do, and. A lot of being a music lawyer, it's not, of course, what I do is I negotiate deals, I sort out disputes with people, I negotiate contracts, I draft contracts. But at the same time, having a deep-seated understanding of what it is to be an artist and what it is to be standing up there, which fundamentally all artists have got a little bit of insecurity because anybody in the world of arts tends to have some sort of background, I don't want to say issue in their lives, but some reason why they're out there doing it. They're not, because it's not a normal job to do. Um, but for me, suddenly getting involved in the careers of others when you, when I'd spent the prior 20 years solely focusing on my own career has really helped me sort of get my mojo back and um, and, and know precisely what it is that I love about it so much and, and count my lucky stars for still being here because really there are very few people in my position globally who've been doing it as long who remain as busy. Do you think that's the main thing looking at other people's careers has taught you about your own? 
Yeah, I think you've got to be, uh, as I say, being a lawyer, because when you're a lawyer, uh, a music lawyer, you're learning things, secrets, uh, you know, intimate details about people's careers that nobody gets apart from those that are closest to them, really only their lawyers and their managers. And it just it just gave me a new spark. I, I It actually caused me to change my own manager that I'd had for many years, try somebody new. It turned out to be hugely successful. Um, and just take the take some of the lessons of other people around you, because because you, as an artist, you live in this kind of insular, tunnel-visioned world um, where it's very easy to lose track with what other people are doing around you, but also lose track with who you are on a, on a deeper level, on a psychological level, uh, and actually sort of remind yourself to go out there, enjoy yourself, and and make, on the one hand, take yourself seriously, but arguably more importantly, not take yourself too seriously. Realise that there's bigger problems in the world, and you're supplying kind of light relief for people. I think the more interviews that I've read of you, heard of you, and then obviously listened to this as well, you seem to break almost every stereotype people might have of an average, potentially Ibiza DJ. What do you think is the big misconception that people often have about you, that maybe when they meet you, they suddenly go, oh... Um, I don't know. It's, it's, I wouldn't be so um, vain as to try and sort of dig into what conceptions people have about me. I think ultimately you can only look at yourself in the mirror, be true to yourself, not be an arse, and uh, try and treat people around you with respect. Um, so, I, so I wouldn't necessarily say I know what other people's uh, perceptions are. I mean, in terms of an Ibiza DJ, which I definitely count as, I mean, I've done well over 500 gigs in Ibiza in my career. Um, I, I, I guess one of my greatest, I, I think you're almost born with this. You're either one of those people who's the last one to leave the party or you're the first one to leave the party. Um, I wouldn't say I'm the first, but I definitely, if there's anything you know staying up all night and staying up for days has never really been my thing which isn't to say I'm boring and don't stay up till 6am no problem at all but uh, I think for, for me that's kept kept me quite clear-headed and quite um, I've never got lost in the in the whole madness of the hedonism and I've had many many friends over the years who've developed sort of addiction problems because of the the lifestyle that is that is wrapped around DJ culture and that's uh, I love a drink I'm not I'm not boring don't get me wrong but I just don't have that addictive gene and I think probably that's uh, a contributing factor to being around for such a long time I don't mean still being alive and kicking with a, a pulse I mean being around having a career for such a long time I don't mean to ask you this so you compare yourself to a lot of other DJs. Don't get me wrong, I don't speak to lots of international DJs. But you strike me as a lot more thoughtful than perhaps who I would imagine a lot of other DJs may be like. I don't know them, so it might, be, it might not be fair for me to say that. But do you think that's true? Um, I would say I'm more thoughtful than some. I know plenty of other very intelligent DJs. But I think that if you've been around a while, uh, when when the kind of... Uh, when the adrenaline and the and the sort of the superficial stuff um, gets peeled back, or the novelty of that superficial stuff of you know being around girls or um, being the centre of attention, which I dare I say when you're standing on a stage you are, or having having a fan base, all that stuff that can probably have a slightly detrimental impact on your personality and your ego. But when that eventually, when that all sort of starts to settle down and you, and you start to um you've been in the industry a while 
I, I think the intelligent amongst us start to question the deeper aspect of what it is you're doing, who you are, what you represent, um, and what music represents. Because music's just music's the most unique art form in terms of its its emotional tugs. It's the only art form that we can sort of attach to memories. That it's got. It just has a unique. Of course, visual arts have an emotional tug, but nothing nothing like music. And I think you know finding. Um, getting a little bit more perspective on your place in the world. I'm not trying to sound all hippie at all. I'm just trying to say I'm, I'm much more thoughtful than I am hippie, if you like about it. But, um, but the other thing is, as you grow up a bit more and as your friends, uh, I mean, the great thing about the music industry is that it really is quite, uh, it's got people from across the social spectrum. It's not full of, yes, maybe some of the bands appear to be full of middle-class kids. You know, don't get me wrong. I'm a middle-class kid, but it's quite, um, it really does pull from quite a broad um, social sort of pool, if you like. And um, so it makes you, uh, again, that makes me quite thankful to have, to be part of something that's not very much, you, you're born in one social lane, you live in one social lane and you, you die in one social lane. Music's a much broader, the music industry is a much broader church than that. And I, I really enjoy that about it. Can I just ask, you've said there about obviously maybe that you've kind of, as you've grown up with it, you've seen it and you look at it maybe in a different light, certain elements of it. But have you ever been drawn into those kind of things where you've thought, oh, maybe I'm getting too attached to these elements, this egotistical things or the whole glitz and glamour of it? And you thought, mm, I'm getting too drawn into this now. I think there was, you know, when I was, I mean, we're going back a really long time. There was a, yeah. there was a, there was a, probably a time where I thought I was taking too many drugs um, but yeah. you know we're going back we're going back a long time I mean this is not and you were not recently one, so. no uh, you know we're going back into my 20s into my early 20s in fact but that was because it was never really me it was quite an easy one to get out of um, because I don't have that addictive gene uh, some of my friends retrospectively told me that they thought I was capable of being a bit of an arse and a bit full of myself but that's why we have friends that's why we you don't want to surround yourself just by sycophantic yes people you want to surround yourself by your old mates who are prepared to tell you when you're being a bit of a bit of a tit you know uh but that, but again that's I, I i'd like to think that none of my my true friends would say that of me in recent decades even um but it, but it's important to take stock it's important to s- surround yourself by people who by your true friends the people you've grown up with so if we go back to basics why judge jewels so, so I got into DJing when I was very young. In fact, I mean, I'm, I'm from North London. I've um, and I've always lived roughly sort of up or near the tree. I've, I've probably probably only ever lived within about a two mile radius of where I was born and raised in in North London, which is a very nice part of North London. So I wouldn't be a fool for for making that decision. And got into DJing when I was still at school when I was sixteen. Just just as I got into the sixth form, found a venue down the road that was prepared to um, allow flagrant infringement of underage rules really i mean um the the age we and me and a friend of mine um who actually went on to be a very very successful music producer um put on events for for the for the kids for our local area who were aged between probably about 14 and 17 um and that kind of got me in that got me into the buzz of playing music to a crowd um and got me into promoting as well and fast forward 
probably a couple of years having done a number of those events I got much more into the illegal rave scene in the late 80s whilst just as I'd started at university I went to university in London to LSE uh, so I had the advantage of being from London and not going out of London therefore still had my pool of friends and of course when you're that age you probably got the largest uh, social circle you have in your entire life little do you know that if you'd if you'd known that 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 by the time you hit 30 your social circle would have got a lot smaller you probably would have cultivated it a bit more whilst you were 18 but um but put on lots of illegal raves and I was a law student I was studying law and uh, these this was at the beginning of sort of the end of what the so-called rare groove beginning of the acid house era which were both very significant in the genesis of of UK and indeed global club, club culture and the events got bigger and bigger, but it was always me that got thrust out in front of the police. The police would always turn up. These were always so these were illegal raves in uh, dodgy venues that we weren't supposed to be in, wet factories, warehouses, disused industrial buildings that existed in London at the time. Now every last square centimetre of London has been redeveloped, but they existed in their droves really at the time. And because I was the law student, it was always me that got thrown out to say to the police when they turned up, which they inevitably did. Uh, officer, this is a party for me and my law student chums, um, which of course, and if you've if you seen the crowd, it was just so blatantly not the case. Um, so, and, and that's where the judge thing came and, and uh, Norman Jay, who was my cohort, who is another very long-standing DJ, uh, gave me the nickname, the judge. And like all nicknames, um, they should be given to you by other people and not created by yourself. Um, I think that's a, I think that's a fair, fair rule where nicknames concerned. And that's where the judge thing started. So, um, it's, it sounded like a nice sort of easy to remember name. And I, dare I say it, I think some of the world's most famous DJs have got really easy to remember names names you could almost uh be you could you could remember even if you're coming stumbling out of a club and vomit their name you could still you could still remember uh Cock Ox. <laughs> you know uh anyway we probably I, I digress but um yeah that's where the judge came from listen if i was in a tight situation with the police and i was in a crowd of people and you were one of them listen to you talk, you would be 100% the person that I'll be sending to talk to them. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty stupid at the time. I, didn't, um, I ended up sort of, I, mean, I didn't get actually charged, but I ended up doing a night in the cell when, uh, eventually after this this sort of bravado. The thing was that, I, I don't know about that, I mean, whether it applies now, who knows, but the, um, the police... Uh, late at night on a Saturday night in London, what didn't were probably not probably quite short staffed, and they didn't really want to have to close these events down because it would cause them more problems than it would solve. What they wanted to know is that it, we were a sort of bunch of nice, respectable kids running these events, which I sort of was, but certainly the people I was running them with far, were far from. <laughs> so, Best but anyway, that's the story. Exactly. Yeah. So you're going to have to indulge me a little bit here because these were a little bit before my time. Paint the picture for me. What were these illegal raves like? Well, they were... Um, the, th the thing about... I mean, the, 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 there's a lot of kind of historical um, picture painting one needs to do, I guess. First and foremost, it's, it's important to understand that music, dance music was in its infancy. You could only hear it in these sort of environments. There were no clubs playing it. There was no radio playing it. Um, all there was... Uh, uh, but also, So if you wanted to kind of 
it, it was the ultimate in DIY culture, in fact. I mean, if you look at modern artists, one of my, one of my bits of spiel in my legal practice when I'm talking to young, young up-and-coming artists who come through to my office for a bit of advice is talking about the importance of DIY culture and talk of DIY brand creation where you go out there where you can't rely on anybody else to create your brand. You've got to do it yourself. And that was kind of our, our spirit. And when you're that young, when you're, um, I was 18, so when you're that young, you don't really have any fear. And the actual setup costs for these events weren't enormous. We had a sound system that we did it in tandem with. Um, you'd, I mean, I don't really want to go into too much detail about how we found the keys to these properties, but we did. Um, and you... Uh, but but the other thing again the context describing them I mean they were all in dirt quite in quite dirty venues which just about had one port of portaloo and we were stringing the the electricity up to kind of generators that we'd go out and rent for the weekend um, so it does sound a little bit do- well it sounds quite dodgy doesn't it um, the other the other important kind of historical fact was that all the clubs in the UK closed a lot earlier then than they do now. So out of London, things closed at 2am. And in even in London, where you, which is a 24-hour city now, things generally close, in fact, almost all things close by 3am. So if you were to create an environment that was that went on to, it, it continued to it, you, you threw people out really. We'd finish at, I don't know, seven or eight in the morning, whenever, whenever it seemed like the the last bunch of people still in there would be there a week later if you didn't kick them out. That was the time to close. So, um, so the, we, we were catering for two sets of demand um, in, in the shape of um, licensing hours and music that weren't catered for, but also creating a kind of underground, a counterculture vibe, something that was that felt a bit dangerous, felt a bit illicit. Um, and it's kind of what we did, and uh, and we didn't, we weren't necessarily doing it to be illegal. We were doing it because we couldn't get in via the conventional paths. You know, we did if we were able to get, if we were able to rent a, a sizable nightclub in central London on a Saturday night, we would have done it. But they wouldn't have given us, they wouldn't have given us a hope in hell. Therefore, we went away and did it ourselves. And that that kind of culture evolved into the huge raves, acid house raves of the. Uh, of the late 80s, which was basically the sort of foundation stone of dance music culture. This might be a naive question, but it's coming from someone who's kind of grown up like promoting nights like you did, but in the age of social media and WhatsApp and stuff. How did you get the word out back then that you were doing a Flyers. Yeah. Flyers. We went out, we knew where the people, we knew where our, um, well, first and foremost, we understood that getting a mailing list together um, which was a physical mailing list done with you know stamps and envelopes yeah. um, was very important. We did that from the from the get go. So we mailed out to an increasingly large uh, mailing list of thousands. And we also went. There were just parts of London, certain bars, certain clubs, certain um, areas that you where where our sort of clientele would turn up to. So. Um, you just needed to go and actually physically promote to people. It was a bit, it's a bit like the early, the early, I mean, probably up to five or 10 years ago in Ibiza. It, no, I think it's fair to say even now, if you go to resorts, you get kind of promoted to by physical PRs, yeah. even now. Um, it probably happened to you and I and Apple when you went to see me back in the day. Um, and that, um, but that mentality was what one had to do in London pre, pre the internet. So, just to get back onto your journey, tell me about pirate radio. 
Yeah, so I started, I mean, I've had, I've had a few little um, stages on my radio journey, which was pirate radio, then two legal stations, and now I'm, I do a sort of globally syndicated radio show. So I started, I started on, well, I was briefly on one other um, ill-fated pirate station, but I started on the then pirate station Kiss FM in London in 1987, so a really long time ago, uh, when I was, again, very, very young. Uh, and that got legalised in 1990. But it was a very, very influential pirate station. I mean, pirate radio is something I still listen to a lot now. It's um, It has a lot of appeal to me because it's raw and it's it plays music from the streets. And there's no not so many rules and boundaries. Um and what what Kiss uh, so the, the pirate stations at the time were very, it, was, it, it was quite a culture of the sort of the London Afro Caribbean community. There were a lot of reggae stations. In fact, that was the predominant pirate sound. So Kiss Kiss was very different from that. Kiss was a a club London club culture based pirate station, which had all the biggest club DJs from the from the time. Uh, many of whom have gone on to be extremely successful uh, many of whom went on to radio one as i did uh, and in 1990 that was made legal and i was on there for as a legal entity for six or seven years before i was then poached to go to radio one in the in 97 uh, i was then on radio one for for 15 years um uh, until about five ish years ago um and now i do a sort of syndicated show that goes out all over the place particularly via podcast and via um via a lot of the different social platforms. Tell me about those Radio 1 days, because I feel that maybe that was the height of radio DJing, do you think, where, you know, things hadn't, Spotify and all this stuff hadn't come around, but having radio shows yes. is even bigger than it is now. It definitely was. I mean, I, don't, I, I still pay a lot of attention to what gets played on Radio 1 now, and I know, you know, the three principal dance DJ. well, all the dance DJs I know relatively well, um, Now, even now in 2000, but... Um, I think it's. I don't think it's um, unfair to say that when that pre Spotify and pre probably high speed broadband because it's easy to forget the internet's been around for ages for twenty twenty five years but uh, high speed internet the really high speed internet probably doesn't go back more than about ten years. Um, where, uh, and it was only when the high, when kind of high speed broadband came into every home that people could start downloading DJ mixes, and that's what enabled streaming to happen. What YouTube, YouTube, and Spotify being the two principal platforms for music, of course, Apple Music too. Um, but so prior to that, really the. The, the way that people could access music, especially in, in, in dance culture, was much more limited. You had these specialist shows, of which one, mine on Radio 1, well, I had two at one time, and then, then one, uh, was very, dare I say it, very important. But you also had kind of other other pinch points of, of, of the culture, which were record shops in particular, um, and Mix Mag was, was very important. And then most of the major towns and cities in the UK had a kind of specialist dance night. And that, that kind of model was semi-replicated in the major territories of the world in kind of, I don't know, Sydney, Melbourne, Los Angeles, New York, um, some point parts, parts of Asia, Singapore in particular. So there was a sort of microcosm of that that, that went on elsewhere in the world. Um, so... The internet, I mean, broadband has been an interesting thing. It's the minute you bring all culture to all people at all times, um, it's very democratizing, just about pronounce that word, in that it allows um, 
allows anybody to make a record and get it out there uh, and it doesn't make music production the, the domain of the privileged few but at the same time it's much harder to see the wood from the trees and there is less there is less of a distinctive voice for the for the curators out there and obviously pre, pre um this that period i was one of the key curators i mean i still am i've still got plenty of um fans and listeners but i do think that era was was a time when the curators of music could make a huge could make a hit in their own right you know one individual me or pete tong or certain other people could make a could make a hit record in their own right and i'm not necessarily sure whether one individual necessarily could do that anymore so this may this may be a really naive stupid question which i think on the surface it'll sound like but from what you said it may be not be do you think the internet's benefited that journey of a DJ or potentially just made it more challenging because there is more, as you say, kind of just more noise? It's such a double-edged sword. It's, um, it's, I mean, the internet is certainly, I mean, I've, I've played in, I've DJed in all over the world really. And I, and the reason I've DJed all over the world, it's certainly if you go outside of the major clubbing territories is down to the internet. It's down to people suddenly be able to discover you when they couldn't do before um but it has also it's kind of made the whole thing a little bit less special but i'm always really loath to be this old you know old i wouldn't say old but older guy coming on and going on about how much better things used to be because it is what it is now now music is out there for everybody um there will still be an underground there will still be a counterculture there will still be people um doing things on an alternative basis it's just so much more difficult to generate i mean they say that dance culture uh, particularly the late 80s and into the 90s was the last big youth movement and and there's been a question Pose, well, it's been the question has been posed whether there will be another youth movement now it is impossible for there to be a sort of um, a covert building culture that nobody really knows about until suddenly it appears in the mainstream um, because the internet doesn't really allow that Every, everybody's got access to everything um, so I don't have any complaints I mean it, the good thing is it's much cheaper I mean when I was probably 21 or something i mean i saved for, for for a couple of years every penny i earned from djing and i built my own recording studio it cost me about 100 grand on in equipment and you could now the same equipment i had then you could now get for as, as a plug-in as a cracked plug-in basically for nothing uh so so the the access to the ability to make music is is completely different now from the way it was um but uh, which is good, which is good and bad in equal measures. The the corollary of that is that there are probably ten thousand dance releases a week, and probably a hundred thousand releases in all genres a week on on the major streaming platforms, uh, because everybody can make a track. On the other hand, much more difficult to feed, you know, to cut through the crap and work, see the wood from the trees, and all those sort of cliches to work out what the really great tracks are. Um, you could argue that that means that DJs become all the more important. Um, of course, you've got Spotify playlists that are both curated by Spotify and some individuals' playlists, and radio does remain important, but it's still significantly more difficult for there to be a kind of common voice in terms of what is the goods, what's the what are the greatest tracks are when there's just so much volume. If you could take me back to like the, these glory days of Ibiza, you have played everywhere, everywhere that matters. You've been there, done it. And then you went on to start Judgment Sundays. So, like, first of all, like, why did you decide to go off on your own? And then 
I suppose, why do you think that became so big? I mean, it was like the biggest night for all these years, you know, in the West End, if not Ibiza, in San Antonio. Um, but why do you think that is? Well, I've been playing for all the major, um, as you say, I've been playing for all the major venues. I've been playing for Cream at Amnesia. I've been playing for Manny Mission at Privilege. I've been playing various things at Pasha. Uh, I, I, and I was doing well, pulling people. I was going there every week. I'd already bought a property in Ibiza, actually. Um, and I, But I, I was kind of working rotationally for different promoters, which... Uh, I was very determined to do, even though a lot of promoters want to kind of grab you exclusively. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to keep, have the fun of going and doing one of any, you know, perm one of five great venues and do it every week throughout the summer. And I was doing that from the sort of mid nineties onwards. And in the end, somebody, um, I was approached by some people who were, who were, who'd bought a pre-existing somewhat tacky nightclub and wanted to basically rebrand it uh, as Eden. Uh, It had previously been a a venue called the Star Club and they sold me the dream, told me about how much they were going to invest in it and basically enabled me to semi-design the club, um, certainly aspects of the club. Um, So so it became something I was really invested in and they said, we'll give you a, a great deal if you want to come and promote your own night. And alongside a business partner of mine, we just thought, well, we'll sod it, let's give it a go. And um, I mean, one of, because I've been doing this thing a long time, there aren't, it's difficult to highlight too many specific memories that stand out over and above all the rest. But the opening night of Judgment, which was in 2000, had uh, the biggest queue I've ever seen at Eden outside it. And it, we were like, clearly when you've gone from the security, whilst historically I'd been a promoter for years, I'd uh, sort of, I'd stayed within the secure blanket of having other promoters book me, pay me a fee, have me turn up. And suddenly I was going back to square one and promoting things again, uh, which was quite nerve wracking because whilst I knew I could pull a crowd, I had no idea that whether this was going to work. And it was just a flying success from day one, um, which isn't just down to me. It was down to having a great team, having a choosing the right DJs uh, and just being and dare I say it, almost being proudly British, if you like. There was almost a bit, there was almost a sense of shame in being British uh, and in San Antonio for for a while. And I, and for me, having a young, really go-mad British crowd in San Antonio who were all very musically knowledgeable, it wasn't a sort of lager-louty crowd, we yeah. just just created an atmosphere that, that that propelled us through for, for 15 years or thereabouts. You've obviously, do you think that's the story you'll tell your grandkids? Or have you got another one if you look back on your career and say, yeah, that's the one that, yeah, that was a bit special? I think the problem with, with music and live performance and being out there is you just, and it's just like DJing, unless the closest I can get to explaining what it's like, especially DJing at a big event with a crowd that are going pretty wild is getting one of my mates up on the decks and having them standing there right with me just to feel it but it's really quite difficult to explain the buzz of performance uh, in words because it's just like i mean it's just all embracing it's a drug it's it's everything um so i think i, I may not even bother to explain it to my grandkids come day because it's just too difficult to put into words what the experience was all about We have talked quite a bit about the past, so maybe if we try and get your opinions on some of the future. You've seen nightlife kind of across all of these years. Where do you think it'll go next, maybe in the next 10 years? Obviously, bearing in mind kind of everything that's going on now. 
Well, I mean, who knows? Um, one would like to think that social distancing will be a temporary phase, uh, and that there will be some way uh, there will be some way through this whole situation we're in the midst of at the moment. Um, I um, I'd be surprised if I do any any DJing in front of a crowd before I'd say September October at the earliest. But who knows? It's at the moment it's mere speculation, isn't it? Um, will I mean, I for me the the thing about clubbing, uh, the thing about festivals, is that as humans we're kind of gregarious, we're kind of social, we like hanging out with people, and and, and actually clubbing is one of the only thing op- opportunities to go and hang out with people you've never met in a relatively safe environment. Yes, if you go to one of those kind of uh, out of town kind of. Uh, ritzy type clubs where people have a scrap outside maybe yeah. the vibe isn't quite as friendly as what I'm describing but certainly the, you know where I've come from is an environment where people can go hang, meet people it's, it's a genuine social opportunity to meet people you've never met before and I and I know this I mean the amount of people have emailed me over the years saying I met my wife on the dance floor at your gig I mean we're talking like scores of people I've heard that from um, so it just so for me, that kind of social aspect of it is really important. And, and, and that's why we need to have it back. And that's why social distancing will just not work in the long term. And I would like to think that that's, we will look back on this period and think, God, that was pretty bad. But now we're, the, uh, the status quo, the norm has been restored and everything's back to normal. Um, but it's also why I'm not mad keen on kind of vip culture of kind of people getting getting bottles and booths fair enough if i go to a club now i mean i'm not exactly your typical clubber age so i might go in a booth but actually i'd much rather be on the dance floor i'd much rather be being amongst it mm. rather than sitting there with getting my my five minutes of fake fame with an overpriced bottle of grey goose um so if i've got any kind of hope for the future it's that the vip culture doesn't get any worse and that people actually see a positive and being in the main bit of the club the main bit of the venue not sort of separate uh not trying to feel some degree of sort of sense of importance random one but you hear a lot of or you, you did hear and then it died off a lot of talk about AI and, you know, like augmented reality of, you know, people going in that, like putting headsets on and experiencing nights like that. Do you think that could ever be something in the future that actually takes off? Or do you think we will never get away from the experience of being there in that room with that DJ? Um, I think now, I think now in lockdown, um, I've been doing my, um, I've been doing my weekly uh, live streams from my DJ booth in my lounge. I must say, I never had a DJ booth in my lounge until this time. <laughs> I've rapidly set up. Um, the uh, Your wife is over the moon. Well, well, she sort of, you know, she's you're married to a DJ. You get it comes with the deck. It comes with the deck, so to speak. Um, I. I would like. I wish we had it now, actually. Um, but then, if you if you if you asked me this question two months ago, prior to lockdown, I would have said no. You, you need to you need to smell people's sweat. You know, hopefully yeah. pleasant smelling sweat. But you need. It's all about interaction with with people. It's all about um, being up close and personal to people. So. It's a shame, actually, that there hasn't been a sufficient evolution in the techno sort of headset, um, the AI he- the headset technology to kind of create a clubbing experience. Or maybe maybe there has been, but I'm not aware of it. Um, but I do hope that when 
we get back to uh, a normal, non-socially distanced uh, clubbing environment, not just clubs, going to the theatre, going to the football, going to um, going to gigs, all, all of that. When all of that's back, then actually doing it with people. I mean, I, I love football. I, I've got season tickets for my, my, me and my son have got season tickets for our team. We can't go to that as well. And I like that for the same reason. I like being up close to people all going a bit nuts. And it's, yeah. uh, it, it can't be... And the, and, and the parallel, yeah, and of course there's a talk about, um, well, I mean, they will almost certainly now play behind closed doors and I, I'll certainly watch it on TV, but it's just not the same as being there. And it's similar to kind of, similar to a virtual DJing. I'm doing it now and, and I've got a couple of million viewers over the course of the weeks I've been doing it. So, so it's been extremely successful, but does that mean I'd rather be doing that to being, than, uh, as opposed to being out there in the thick of things? No chance. So obviously you've DJed all over the world. You've done this, that, and the other. Then you decided to go back to school and become a lawyer. From the outside looking in, there was no real need for you to do that. You're successful in your own right. So why? Um, because well, for a few reasons. One, I um, at, there aren't that many DJs older than me to give me a notion of what the next step is for for, for a so-called superstar DJ. I mean, it's, I mean, I suppose it's probably like Carl Cox. Uh, Pete Tong and Paul Oakenfold to name but a few well to name a li- there's not many more than that really who are older than me to look at to think, think you know what are they doing and they're all continuing to DJ but I just didn't know what was next and I I mean, with with retrospect, I mean, thing. If anything, I was busier in 2019 than I was 10 years earlier when I decided to be a lawyer. But I, I just needed to know what the next stage of my life is, and to, to have something that I could do comfortably for, for as long as I wanted to do. Which I, I think with DJing, you, you you don't want to be in a club forever. I don't get me wrong. I'm going to be doing this for a lot longer. But but also that touring, doing this, doing the 300 flights a year, being. Um, being away in hotels sort of 100 nights a year. Um, I just wanted something that... I've got two kids, I, one of whom, the older of whom I didn't see grow up for the first 10 years of his life. So I, you know, I wanted just something a little bit more grounded from a from a physical point of view because just waking up in your own bed and getting uh, a decent night's sleep. I mean, I, wasn't, I was never going to stop DJing. I just didn't want to do it more than weekends and do it on a more more sensible basis so I just thought you know what can I do where where does my skill set lie and ironically I had a law degree from when I was 21 which by the time I decided to pick pick up the legal reins again was completely out of date it's a bit like studying medicine in the 19th century and thinking you can suddenly be a doctor in 2020 um so I had to basically do it again get a second degree uh I did it all at night school and I did my professional qualifications um all whilst I was touring I mean most of the studying was done on planes whilst touring um, which was was hard, but at the same time, it's good in life. Good in life, not just to to keep giving yourself challenges and keep giving yourself disciplines. And um, so, so came out of that. Twenty twelve, I joined one of the leading entertainment firms, and then I've got I moved just over two years ago to to where I ultimately uh, end up, um, which is in Kings Cross. The practice is Sound Advice. It it's uh, it's in a, an area called Talyard, which is basically the biggest industrial uh, office park of music-related businesses in the world. 200 different businesses, about 2,000 people working there, every manner of different type of business, recording studios, record companies, you name it, it's there. Um, 
Apple's Beats Radio is there. Uh, so I run my practice from there. Um, and for me, it's about I mean, what we haven't mentioned is a lot of other things I've done over the course of my time. I've been a, I ran a management company and a booking agent. Uh, I was also, also set up a couple of labels in an A&R capacity for Universal Records. So bundling in, bundling in all that experience, um, I knew would make me a very good, quite unique lawyer, especially one who's an active artist at the same time. Um, and it just, and I've got a lot of time for people. And for, for me, it's, uh, it's not just a job. For me, it's actually imparting information and imparting some of the mistakes I've made along the way. I mean, I've made some right decisions, but I've certainly made some wrong ones, plenty of wrong ones as well, too. And if I can kind of stop others from doing that in an industry which has got its shady moments, that's that's for sure, um, then... So that's the kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm slightly dumbed down philosophical back drop to it but that's what i do and it's it's worked really really well got a very big client base um quite a lot of it which is dance music but i've got a lot of pop and urban acts that i represent as well uh, and then various sort of clients who aren't artists um across the spectrum of the music industry and I, I i absolutely love it i mean it's a really on paper superficially being a lawyer and being a dj sound like a world apart but they're actually very connected because of my life as a as an artist and the area of law in which i practice so now i guess in your current role you you probably give a lot of advice to you know younger artists and younger people who come through to see you for advice on law but if you were to give some advice to yourself maybe based on like you've just done your first gig in ibiza what advice would you give to yourself now based on what you know well, I don't know if you give advice after a first gig. I mean, it's there's different advice according to what what the circumstances are. I mean, I think there's more there's more generic business kind of career related advice um, that you would give in the first instance that came before giving legal advice because I often get um, people getting in touch with them for that more generic stage one advice. And I think that the uh, I think the, the, the number one bit of advice and looking back on myself, dare I say, I, I did tick all those boxes is you've got to be an all rounder. You've got to be good at DJing. You've got to be good at marketing. You've got to be good at doing interviews, moderately intelligent, at least um, make good records um, and good at networking uh, and got to be a bit lucky as well. Um, and if you can tick and and if you can't tick all of those boxes, it's unlikely you're going to succeed as an artist, as awful as it is to say. But it doesn't mean there's not another space for you in the music business. That's that's important equally to say. Jules, you have been an absolute pleasure. This has been an absolute education for me, kind of from somebody who maybe has done been in this industry, but for a lot, well, a hell of a lot shorter time, but kind of from a more recent period. You've told me about things that I was vaguely aware of but had no real sense of so i hope it's been the same for everyone listening as well but thank you so so much i think we've all got how busy you are so we really appreciate your time great pleasure thank you for inviting me on board Whew. how does he do it i've been swamped just doing this little podcast on top of my usual job yet jules seems to have been spinning plates and records left right and center for more time than well i've even been alive but a huge thank you to him for taking the time to come on for a chat. It is finally all stations go for us at the moment with summer 2020 kicking off 
well, better late than never. We're going to start at Old Beach Ibiza this Sunday before all of our other events in Ibiza and Marbella get going next week from July 18th. Talking of next week too, we'll also be back with another podcast speaking with Dave Gardner-Chan, the student parties man. But until then, as always, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you all very soon. 